Well, good morning, everyone. I want to thank all of our readers to read through Titus, who read uh, Titus for us today. It's fun going through a book of the Bible that takes about six or seven minutes to read the entirety of. It's a shorter book, right? But I think there's still so much for us to learn uh, throughout the whole thing. Uh, Titus, it's one of the three pastoral epistles that Paul wrote. The other two are First and Second Timothy, and then we have Titus. And so if you have one of the uh, scripture journals, if we have some in the back if you want to pick one up, um, this one little booklet contains all three pastoral epistles within it. And these are letters that Paul has written to Timothy and then Titus, who are some younger men uh, who he has been discipling and training up to be sent out and to continue his ministry. They're people who will be pastors or who will help plant a lot of churches. And last week... Uh, we were going through some of the background of Titus, and we discussed how he has been sent off to Crete. It's the island south of Greece. Uh, we read it that, that it's a, a place of debauchery. There's sinfulness. It's a hedonistic society. And so it's, it's a difficult place to seek to plant churches. Today, I want us to put ourselves in Titus' shoes. You have been dropped off on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and your job is to plant churches. And how would you go about that? What do you think is important to the life of a church? And then how encouraging would it be to receive a letter from your mentor, or in his case, from Paul? I'd imagine he's opening it, and and perhaps you would wonder, what do you think Paul is going to tell me to do first about planning a church? Is he going to give me some good advice for how to write a sermon? Or perhaps he'll, he'll walk through, how do I get my, my members and congregants motivated for the gospel to go out and live missionally for Jesus? Those are all wonderful things that we hope happen in a church. But today we get to see what does Paul first tell Titus to do. Last week was our introduction. And this week we're getting into the body of the letter where Paul is addressing his first order of business. So if you have your Bibles, again, we're in Titus. We're in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the pews in front of you. And we're going to be on page 938 of that Bible. So if you have those, we'll go ahead and just read and see what does Paul seek to address, first and foremost, for Titus as he is planting churches. Titus 1, 5 says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So first, verse 5, we see what's important for Paul. As he's reminding Titus, hey, your role here is you're putting churches into order. You're, you're planting and establishing churches. And the first thing he wants to walk through is the need and necessity to establish and appoint elders at these churches. As we're going through this book, our prayer for King's Church is that we would continue to grow to be a gospel-centered people 
who plant gospel-centered churches. And for this to happen, there need to be gospel-centered leaders who can model for people what it looks like to reflect the qualities of Christ. And those leaders can then raise up others to go out and plant gospel-centered churches. So for Titus to be successful in this task that he has been given, in order to plant these healthy churches on Crete, he has a need to plant elders, or excuse me, he needs to appoint elders in these church plants. And this is our big idea for today, that a healthy church is led by godly leaders who hold fast to the word of God. A healthy church is led by godly leaders who hold fast to the word of God. And before we dive into what this elder looks like, we're just going to go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, I thank you that, that we have instructions on what it looks like uh, to lead a healthy church. Father, I pray that here at King's Church we would uh, reflect this model that is laid out for us in Titus. Would we be people who uh, teach the word, God, hear the word, and ultimately let that word take root in our lives so that then we go and we live and we uh, do good works for the glory of your name and for reaching the nations with the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All righty. So this passage is pretty straightforward. We just, we're talking about what it looks like to be an elder or an overseer, as it says in verse 7. And I want to point out that there are a couple different titles uh, given throughout Scripture for this role of someone who has authority over a church and preaches the Word of God over people. And so here we see they, they can be called elders. They can be called overseers. Elsewhere, we, what we call them pastors or a bishop or a shepherd. And so if you're ever reading and studying and you see these titles brought up, they're all referring to the same office of an elder that we're talking about here today. And while we are discussing an elder, I think this passage is still useful and beneficial for the entire church. And there are three primary reasons why. The first is that an elder is intended to be an example for the church. So these qualities that we're walking through, they're going to be requirements for an elder, but they're meant to be held up as an example for the rest of the church to follow. And so these are attributes that hopefully we all desire to emulate and have displayed in our own lives. So as we're talking through these qualities, I'd ask, would you examine your own life and think about, are there some qualities that, that you might have strengths in or ways and areas that you should continue to strive to grow to be more like Christ with these attributes. The second reason why this is important, particularly for us at King's Church, is that we're congregationally ruled. And so that means that who becomes an elder here and who leads over this church is nominated and then eventually voted upon and elected by our congregants. So if it is one of your responsibilities to, to be able to nominate men to be an elder, we want you to know and be biblically informed for what you should be looking for, for someone to fill this office of an elder. And the last reason why this is important for all of us is because once you have an elected an elder, you are responsible to hold them accountable to this standard that is laid out here. And I truly mean this sincerely and seriously, that for the good of this church, we need our members to hold Chad and Eric and myself accountable to what we will be talking about today. The church is not about one person leading it where they think they should go. The church is, 
It should be led by men who are submitted to Christ and seek to model some of his attributes and teach people the word of God. And so I'm serious that if if we are not living up to these qualities, if we are living in sin, if we are uh, teaching false doctrine, there is a responsibility upon members of this church to hold us accountable and to address that with us. And so for these reasons, it's important that we all know what are requirements to be an elder. So as we're looking through this, we're first going to talk about the life of an elder, really thinking about his home life and how he leads that. Then we'll look at some character qualities that an elder should be displaying. And finally, we'll talk about the roles and responsibilities of an elder. So the first point, we're going to be looking at the life of an elder. This is from verse 6. Paul says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So first, an elder should be one who is above reproach. And this means that they should be blameless. Not in the sense that they are perfect. We can all know and freely admit that we are all sinners in need of God's grace. But there should never be a question about a, a pastor's moral character. Right? We should never have pastors in, in morally compromising situations. We don't want to walk in morally gray areas or flirt with this line of sin. We want to place guards in our own, own lives so that we're protected from those things and that there's not a doubt as to whether or not we are living rightly. A pastor should not be a shady character. He should be morally upstanding, an example to the whole church. And then he begins to say that, that elders should be the husband of one wife and his children should be believers. And I think this, this verse in particular causes a lot of people to ask a lot of various questions. And I want to take a little bit of time to address three in particular. And the first is that when we're talking about a husband, does that mean that the office of elder is reserved for men? The second question is when it says that an elder is a husband of one wife, does that mean that an elder has to be married? And the final question that we'll talk about a little bit is it says the, the believer, or excuse me, the children of a pastor should be believers. And so if a child of a pastor walks away from the faith, does that disqualify someone from being a pastor? So I want to take some time and kind of talk through these things. And the first question we're going to spend the most time on of whether or not the office of an elder is reserved for men. And I recognize that this is a a hard and a rather contentious point. In fact, the, the Southern Baptist Convention that was meeting this week was addressing this very issue. So I want to take time to speak clearly and carefully upon this point. And to be clear, we believe from here, Titus 1, as well as 1 Timothy 3, which is another passage concerning elders, we'll address it a couple times today. From those two passages, we believe that the, the elders or the pastors of our church are, will be men. This is a difficult thing, and it's hard to, to obey sometimes. And I want to comment upon why it can be difficult, but also why it's beneficial to do so. And as I'm talking, uh, this is not just Caleb giving ideas. Thankfully, I got to have some good conversations with Catherine and get her input. And also last week during our small group, I got to sit at a table of ladies and hear their input um, as we're going through this passage. So I, I appreciate all of your comments, your honesty, and also your humility to continue to want to, to be obedient to Scripture. 
So let's first address, I mean, why does this uh, statement that, that a pastor should be a man, why does this grind a lot of people's gears? And one reason is that no one likes being told that you can't do something. Right? As soon as someone says, because you're a woman, you are not qualified to be a pastor over a church, a lot of people want to buck up against that. And Catherine pointed out that this has been a struggle since Genesis 3. Right? In the fall, during the curse, God says that the woman, her desire will be contrary to the man, yet he would rule over her. And so for all of humanity, this has been a struggle. So it shouldn't be a shock to us that we still struggle with this today. Another reason that this is hard is because of how many men have failed in the role of pastor. And not only do they fail, they often hurt a lot of people in the process. So if you have been hurt by a pastor, I, I cannot imagine how hard it would be to willingly seek to submit to other elders. This would be a real hurt to work through. And finally, we'll also recognize that there are many women who are incredibly talented in giftings of teaching, of, of leadership, of discipleship, of caring for people. And so it can be difficult to sit under the authority of someone who you are more able than in certain areas of life. And these are hard realities to deal with and, and reasons why people don't like this command. But I would humbly ask that we all seek to continue to be obedient to Scripture. And this means that at King's Church, our pastors and our elders will be men. If we neglect to obey the Bible on this point, why would we continue to teach Scripture and expect people to be obedient to it? The Bible, it demands a lot of things that are hard to obey, obey and that are radically countercultural. Yet scriptures are the absolute authority in our lives, and this is why we hold a complementarian view of church. And this is the reason why we have this belief, but I also want to comment upon the, the positive side of being obedient to this command. Because I think as we follow this model laid out for us, it actually reflects God's character and his nature. And we're also in line with God's good created order. And here's what I mean by that. Let's think about the, the triune God, right? That there are three uh, deities of, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and they are all yet one God. And within God's nature and God, his person, we see headship and submission modeled, right? As Christ was going to the cross, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And because he submitted to the will of God, because there is submission, we have hope of salvation. God reflects this quality. And because Christ has then redeemed the church, now we have a church that is submitted to Christ as our head. And we are obedient to what he has said through his scriptures for us. And within this church then, what we're talking about today, there have been a few men who are set apart to have authority over the people. And the men and women can submit to their authority as they ultimately are under Christ's authority and under his teachings. One final relationship where we see this reflected that I want to talk about is in the marital relationship. Paul draws right that connection between marriage and the church in Ephesians 5. And from there, we learn in other places in Scripture that men and women, we are all equal in value and dignity and worth because we are all created in the image of God. Yet, 
we all have different roles and giftings and responsibilities once again because we are made in the image of God. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they all have distinct roles, yet they are all equal in being God. And they work out those roles in perfect, complementing ways with one another. And we want to reflect that here at King's Church, where all of us brothers and sisters in Christ will strive together in the giftings that God has given us for the benefit of the church. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that God has given the church apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for its benefit. And it's this one role of a shepherd or a pastor or an elder, one who has authority over church and who preaches the word of God to the assembled congregation, that role has been reserved for men. And I think we can get so consumed by only ever saying, well, this one role is reserved for men, and that's restrictive. And often, I think, if you only ever view church as the hour and a half on a Sunday morning, it could look restrictive, right? Where you come, you sing a few songs, and then a man stands up and talks for half an hour. And that's all you think church is, that that can seem hard and restrictive. However, I would say that's a rather narrow view of church. Right? We need other men and women to, to exhibit their giftings of apostleship, being evangelists, and being teachers of the word. We want to celebrate that. Right? I think there is a complaint sometimes that if a woman is restricted from being a pastor, then she can't live out the giftings that God has given her. And I think there's no lack for opportunities within a church for everyone to be able to live out the giftings and the roles and responsibilities that God has given them. And I hope we celebrate that here. I think we model it very well here at King's Church. There are men and women who are stepping up and leading in various areas. And I, I want to highlight just a few. How we just heard Shannon we got to go visit Megan, our first missionary sent out last fall with the gift of apostleship. We see Catherine and Shannon and Jordan are some of our most faithful evangelists here at King's Church going out weekly on campus and in apartment complexes to share the gospel. Jordan has continued to, to teach and equip our ladies talking about false doctrines. The ladies have their weekly prayer meetings. They're active in our small groups and they lead discipleship groups. I'm not trying to sugarcoat this point. It really is a difficult issue. I understand that. But I do hope that we submit to the, the order and the way that God has laid this out for us in our church model, all the while celebrating and encouraging and empowering people to continue to live out their giftings uh, as best they can here at the church. And there can be a lot more said on this topic. We definitely need to, to keep moving. Uh, but if you do have any questions or comments, uh, please come talk to me, talk to another elder. We would be happy to, to talk more on this, this point with you. We'll continue to, to look at the life of a pastor and thinking on this question of, does a pastor have to be married when it says he's the husband of one wife? And I think part of our question on this point comes from the fact that we don't live in a polygamous society anymore, right? That in Crete, people uh, were not necessarily monogamous. And so I think Paul is writing and saying, hey, if you are married, you should only be married to one woman so that you are wholly dedicated to that woman just as Christ is wholly dedicated to his church. So some part of our question and unease, I think, over this point comes from we're, we're living in a completely different culture. But it definitely still has bearing on our life today that if you are married, you should be wholly dedicated to your wife. 
There shouldn't be any uh, deep emotional or flirtatious relationships with any women outside of your wife. But to answer the initial question of, can men who are not married be pastors? And we would still say yes, right? That Paul himself wasn't married, and he said that sometimes it's better for people to remain single so that they have more time and energy to dedicate to the Lord. That being said, I think that's more of an exception than necessarily the norm. There are a lot of wonderful attributes such as sacrificial love and servant leadership and humble discipline that can be learned through marriage and through having children in your household. And now concerning these children, what happens if a pastor has a child who walks away from the Lord? Are they disqualified from being an elder? And I would also ask, then what if there is an elder who's single and doesn't have children? Is he disqualified? We would say that that having children is not a requirement to be an elder. However, if you do have children, there is an expectation upon the elder and upon his wife to be raising those children in the teachings and admonition of the Lord in their homes. 1 Timothy 3.5 said, "If, If someone can't manage their own household, how will then they manage the church? And so if, if our pastors come and are seeking to disciple people on Sundays or, or throughout the week at church, we want to make sure that that is uh, consistent across their whole life, that they are first and foremost seeking to disciple those people who are in their homes under their authority and raising them in the church. That being said, if a child later on in life walks away from the faith, we believe that, of course, they're still the, the child of this pastor, yet they are out of the household and they are under their own authority as an adult. And so while a pastor might decide to step down for a while so he can go intentionally pursue that child, that there's not a requirement or a disqualification if, if an older adult who is the son or daughter of a pastor chooses to walk away from the Lord. So again, when we're thinking about the life of a pastor, they should be above reproach. They should be people who have integrity, who are discipling people in church and in ministry, yet also in their home and in those relationships. Now we'll continue on looking at the character qualities of an elder. We see those laid out for us in verses 7 and 8, where it says that for an overseer right, or an elder, as God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. First, we see that an elder or a pastor is a steward of God's church. The church is the bride of Christ, and it has been entrusted to the pastors to lead until Christ's return. This is a weighty responsibility. Hebrews 13, 17 says that the elders will have to give an account for the souls that have been entrusted to them. That's a scary reality to think about, that you, as a pastor, one day will stand before the throne of God and bear the burden of how well you led a church. And for those reasons, becoming an elder, it's not something that should be entered into lightly. And there are certain character qualities that must be evident in the life of an elder to be fit for this office. And we'll look at those now. First, we see there are five things to avoid laid out in verses 7. And there are six things to pursue in verse 8. So firstly, in verse 7, an overseer must not be arrogant. 
Again, leading a church is not about a single individual who gathers a lot of people and gains popularity and leads them how he wishes. We should be submitted to the word of God and never compromise what we are teaching people. I think Christ, right, is the perfect example of this, of never letting arrogance become a part of his life. As he had crowds flocking to him, right, how often would he say something that made a lot of people angry and go away? But how often, how sad is it do we see pastors today as they gain popularity, they begin to change the message that they preach. They don't want to offend people. They don't want people to leave. And so arrogance should never get in the way of an elder speaking truth. Paul also warns us of the danger of arrogance in the life of new believers who are promoted to leadership too early. This comes in 1 Timothy 3.6, where Paul says that he, an elder, must not be a recent con- convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Oftentimes, I think churches can find people who are, are very dynamic speakers. They're good at attracting people or making church seem uh, popular for people to come to. And they don't look at the spiritual qualities of a person's life. And here we see that spiritual maturity, spiritual age, can be more important than physical age, right? Right? But we want people who are rooted and grounded in Scripture and have a track record of years of being faithful to the Lord. We want them to be rooted and grounded so that they don't compromise on the truth that they are teaching to the church. An elder also shouldn't be quick-tempered. We were just studying Exodus 34, 5, and 6, and we learned that God is slow to anger. And so this should be an attribute that is reflected in the life of an elder. He can't be one who is quick to anger, who has fits of outrage, but a pastor should be one who is calm, who can prayerfully and humbly take criticism, who can work with people, and who can navigate some sensitive issues. A pastor also shouldn't be a drunkard. He can't be a slave to a substance. There should be no addictive behaviors in the life of a pastor. In the introduction, what we talked about last week, we saw that in Christ we are slaves of Christ. And so we shouldn't belong to anything else. We shouldn't be bound to anything else. A pastor also shouldn't be violent. This is similar to, to being you know, slow to anger. But if there's any outbursts of anger, if there's any physical violence, that is a disqualification for someone to be a pastor. And finally, a pastor cannot be greedy for gain. Being in a A leadership position over someone spiritually can be a very dangerous position for someone who is greedy for gain. There can be money made. There can be power attained over people through this position. And so if someone has contrary motivations for becoming a pastor, that is dangerous to the church. And they should not become an elder. Now as we move on, we get to look at six qualities that are positive things that pastors should be exhibiting, but they're things that we can all be pursuing in our own life. And the first thing is that a pastor ought to be hospitable. His house and doors should be open to welcome people in. And first, I think this helps people see that he has integrity, right? That he doesn't just put on a good face on a Sunday morning, but that in his home, he is discipling his children. He is loving his wife. I think also there can be a lot of great life discipleship happening in a household. Secondly, a pastor should be a lover of good. He shouldn't have twisted or perverted interests, but he should approve what is true and beautiful and good. I'm reminded of what we studied in Philippians 4, 8, 
that finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is what a pastor should cast his mind to. These are the, should be the pursuits of a pastor. An elder should also be self-controlled. He should pursue what is good and reject what is sinful and evil. A pastor needs to be upright in morally good standing with his church, with his family, his neighbors, his, his, his uh, workplace. They should be holy, set apart, seeking to imitate the character qualities of Jesus Christ. And finally, a pastor should be disciplined to continually study Scripture, to pray, teach, disciple, and evangelize in all times and seasons of life. And this is the picture that Paul has painted for what an elder or what a pastor or a leader of a church should look like. And I wonder if you were to go out and ask some people, what are leadership qualities? Or if you were to uh, look at some CEO's life, do you think their qualities and their life would look like what we've just been discussing a church leader should look like? So often, right, I think the world would say that there needs to be charisma or someone needs to be good-looking or really driven or have a great idea and just pursue it regardless of the cost. That's what makes a good leader. That's what makes a good leader of a business in this world. However, the, the image we see here in Titus is radically different from the world. I think often if we try to grow a church and lead a church like we see the world leading businesses, that can end in disaster. So as the qualities of a pastor should differ from the qualities of a worldly leader, the purposes and the roles and responsibilities of a pastor should also look radically different than those of a worldly leader. Often we see, again, CEOs who have ideas and they run over people in their way to, to seek to accomplish their end and their dream. Yet a pastor, right, is really called to set aside their own ambitions and to submit themselves to the word of God and to teach that and preach that over their people. So our final point is we're looking at the role of an elder, as outlined in verse 9. Here it says that a pastor must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. An elder should be one who holds fast to Scripture. He teaches it, and he applies it to the lives of his believer, and he rebukes false teaching. And this word that we have is trustworthy. We have a hope that we can put our faith in, right? And this hope is the good news of Jesus Christ. I want to read a quick overview of the gospel that we also see in Titus. It's Titus 3, verses 3 through 8. It says that, For we ourselves, all of us, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. There's that same word from verse 9. 
And I want, us, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for the people. I think this is one of the best overviews of the gospel in just a few verses. We see that we were all dead in our sin. We were all slaves to our passions, right? Yet because of the goodness and the love of Jesus Christ, he sent his one and only son to die in our place and pay the penalty for our sins. And this is nothing that we have done. We have done nothing to deserve this. Yet this grace and this mercy is offered to you freely to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you do that, then you have a trustworthy statement of one day of attaining eternal life and now having a life that you can seek good works through. So this trustworthy word that we all have to hold to is something that pastors are required to be able to teach. This is one final requirement of an elder that I think a lot of men and women can exhibit a lot of these qualities we looked at in verses 7 and 8. But a pastor or an elder is one who is also required to be able to teach and preach that word over people. And his job is to train and equip the people through the word of God so that that word might take root in our lives and that we can go and live out in light of this gospel. We want our people to be biblically informed and knowledgeable to know who God is. Right? What is the state of humanity? Do we have a hope of salvation? And how can we live as believers. And so it's an elder's responsibility to be able to train and equip the people, but then it's a responsibility of all the members of church to then go out in force with giftings to declare this good news to the world around us. Right? An elder's job is not meant to do everything required for ministry. His main function is to teach people so that then all of us together can walk together and seek to go out into our various spheres of influence with this message of the good news of Jesus Christ. That is a much more effective way to reach the world than a single dynamic leader. And finally, the last responsibility of an elder is to rebuke false teaching. You know, if we have this message of eternal life, we want to make sure that we get that message correct. And while rebuking false teaching, it can be hard and uncomfortable it is necessary, and it's really a protection for the church. If we are uh, accountable for the people underneath our leadership, then we don't want them to be led astray by false doctrine. And we also don't want to teach false doctrine. So we want to be bold to speak against that. Paul addresses that a lot more, and Eric will talk on that next week. But in short, there is a responsibility to rebuke this false teaching to protect the church. But this should never be done in a domineering way. It should be done with grace and humility and seeking repentance on behalf of that person. So this is the, the picture of what an elder looks like. That in his home life, he is above reproach and he is leading his family and discipling them. He's displaying various Christ-like attributes in his own life. And finally, he holds fast to the word. He teaches it to his people and he rebukes false teaching to protect the flock. And I hope that we still all can, can learn something from this, from this passage. I've got four kind of applications for us today. That first, with these qualities, will we all seek to emulate those in our own lives? And if you are ever aspiring to one day become a pastor, begin seeking to put into practice these qualities in your life today. They don't happen as soon as you become a pastor, 
Rather, they should be evident in your life before then. Secondly, would we all hold fast to the word of God? One, to be able to recognize and rebuke against false teaching. But also, we know all these character qualities, I can't muster up energy for those to be evident in my life. That only comes through the Holy Spirit changing my heart and my mind. And that happens as I am studying scripture and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in my life. The next thing is, as we are studying scripture, would that take root in our lives and motivate us to go live out the word of God? Take that to your spheres of influence and teach the gospel to those around you. And the final point is I would humbly ask you to pray for your leaders. We truly need help. And so would you pray that we would display the characteristics of Christ? Would we lead and serve and sacrifice for our church the way that Christ has done for all of us? And I'm excited today because we get to also take the Lord's Supper And so as we're thinking about how should we lead a church, what does a good leader look like? We have the example of a perfect leader of Jesus Christ who gave his life for all of us, who could redeem us through his blood. So today, as we are taking the Lord's Supper, I invite you all to to think upon how Christ is, is our perfect leader who sacrificed himself for us. Each month, um, as we take the Lord's Supper, We want to recognize a couple of our our shut-in congregants who can't uh, meet in person with us. We want to celebrate them and pray for them. So this week, uh, we want to recognize and pray for Ms. Carolyn Allen, Ms. Irene Ashley, and Ms. Yvonne Benfield. And so where you're at, would you just take a minute to pray for them, uh, celebrating and rejoicing right that they are a member of our family, uh, but we are sorrowful that they can't be here in, in person with us. So pray for them that they would hold fast to the word of God in their own lives. You just take a minute to do that. Today, the second thing we want to do is we want to recognize and also celebrate some of our new members. Uh, At the Lord's Supper, this is open to any believers. Um, If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are welcome to take communion with us. If you've never given your life to Christ, we ask that you refrain from this. This is a a sacrament reserved for the church. We want to recognize and rejoice that we have some new members who have joined King's Church. And now we get to take communion together as a family. So I'll first invite the band back up and be getting ready. As I, as I call your name for the new members, would you just uh, come to the front real quick so that we can recognize and celebrate with you? So first we have uh, Andrew Bear, uh, Caroline Joseph, who's not here today, also Caroline Kennedy, Ben Oliver, Rohan and Sarah Salhotra, Myers Stewart, and then James Fisconti, who's also gone for this summer. If you want to come to the front real quick, we can all give him a hand. 